Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the concept of lean product. Among the topics we'll discuss are which metrics lean product focuses on, some of the skill sets a team needs to effectively put lean product into practice, and the burgeoning field of customer experience management. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Jeremy Caverly. Jeremy is an entrepreneur, product manager, and mobile strategist at In-House Realty, part of the Quicken Loans family of companies. Jeremy's areas of expertise include mobile product development, enterprise mobility, digital content distribution, and blockchain technologies. Just a few of the companies with whom he has worked over the course of nearly two decades are Nike, Whole Foods, Universal Music, PBS, and Visa. I had the distinct pleasure of working alongside Jeremy for a brief but glorious run at a startup in DC called Pointabout, and everything I know about WordPress, I learned in running a website that I essentially ended up inheriting from him. So Jeremy Caverly, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Glad to be here. Thanks so much, Will. Absolutely. So let's kick off today's episode with a definition of lean product. The lean concept has been applied to a number of disciplines going back to the lean manufacturing days of the early 80s. More recently, it has been popularized in the world of lean or agile software development and lean UX. For listeners that may be unfamiliar with the concept, what does lean product mean to you? So for me, I'd say that the main concept of lean product is not even so much that it has anything to do with the, the actual product that you ship or that you put into the hands of your prospective customer. It actually has a lot more to do with the concept of whatever that thing may be that you get into their hands, get it into their hands as early as you humanly can do so in order to get immediate feedback and immediate signals from those prospective buyers as to whether or not you are closer to your product market fit than you would have been beforehand. Um, And for anybody who's not familiar with the idea of product market fit, it's basically what startups are mostly doing for the first part of their existence in the world is trying to kind of find that perfect fit of what it is that they're trying to get somebody to pay them money for and the audience of people that's looking to pay money for a a, a solution to their problem. And to to quickly get to the the most successful combination of features and, and price of your product, you have to test that and actually try to get people to buy it from you. And the mistake that people have historically made, and and not necessarily that they they knew that it would be a mistake, but teams historically what they do, and this this gets into a little bit of why lean product is is so associated with the agile method of producing software, uh, even though they're sort of distinct concepts. What people used to do is they'd go sort of the, the kind of, if you have the vision of kind of locking themselves in a room and they'd get together and imagine what they thought the product should be and not necessarily talk to prospective customers or past customers. They'd just, you know, kind of go on the idea of the Henry Ford, you know, if, if we asked people what they'd want, they'd ask for a faster horse. 
Well, there's there's some truth to that, but you still have to get what you think is going to be the solution in front of people much more quickly than a lot of people think should be the case. So the main idea of lean product, when you're talking from lean product development, the idea is basically that you have this concept of what you're going to ultimately build as a product. Let's say that's a car that you're going to deliver to somebody, and, and I'm going to totally crib from a, a, a pretty good graphic online about lean product development. And, you know, let's say your final product is a car and it's going to have doors and windows and a motor and all this other stuff. But if the concept that you're trying to sell is just easier transportation than walking, you might not necessarily need to spend all the time of designing and building your first prototype car in order to get immediate market feedback on do people want an easier way of tra of transporting themselves besides walking. And you can test that theory and that concept a lot more quickly with something like a scooter or a skateboard or a go-kart if you built one of those things, got it in front of customers, and then immediately got their feedback before you started adding features and functionality like steering wheels, windows, doors, roofs, and all that other stuff. And it gets you faster to the idea of product market fit um, and essentially removes all limitations of how can we test this in front of people as quickly as possible. We're testing a theory. Let's sort of quote unquote hack together uh, the most minimum viable version of that product. That's where the term of MVP comes from. And let's get that in front of people and starting and getting their feedback as quickly as possible and then go from there. And you mentioned the, the idea of kind of getting signals from the market. Are there certain metrics or measurements that are like lean product 101 metrics? So there's, there's not really specific metrics besides pure conversion and adoption. So you can generally speak to what you're looking for is, will somebody react to this in a positive manner? And you know, optimally in, in the idea of business and having a product that you hope people would generally buy, you the best test and metric is will people hand over money for what it is that, that you're testing? And you know, your final product might be a thousand dollars, but if you can get somebody to give you a hundred for some close approximation for what that's gonna be right now, that's that's a positive indicator that somebody out there has a problem and they're looking to hire a solution to solve that problem. That's the whole concept of jobs to be done when it comes to doing product development. And we can definitely chat more about that concept as well. But it's really just you're testing the idea of, will somebody hand you money? Are they, are, do they have a big enough pain in their life for whatever it may be that they're looking to hire a solution to rid them of that pain? And, and do you have a solution to that pain that they believe is a fair, is a fair value at a fair price that, that they believe actually will solve this, this problem without them having to go try a bunch of other solutions. And I think you may have just, just kind of answered it, but you mentioned jobs to be done. The idea there is, will, will whatever you're peddling allow me to make my life easier, essentially? Absolutely. And, and really that, that idea of, can I hire your product to solve my problem? That, that idea is just the sort of the fundamental core of that's the question you're trying to answer. And then the jobs to be done framework kind of comes into, well, how do you get at that? Because the, one of the issues is, is that just like the Henry Ford quote of if I asked people, they'd tell me they wanted an, an, another, a faster horse. Just like that, that issue is that your users aren't necessarily a great uh, 
your users aren't necessarily a great source of accurate data or accurate information if you just ask them to tell you something. Really the only primary first party dependable data is non-biased observation of real behavior in the wild. So that's the idea of you could walk out on the street and ask a bunch of people, hey, how does this web page look? Do you like it? Would you click this button? Or would you give me $20 for this thing I'm trying to sell you? And unfortunately, as many as 60% more people than really would are going to affirmatively answer, yes, I'd give you $20 or yes, I like that button. Uh, those numbers obviously can vary wildly as to what you'd actually observe if you actually ask them to do so. The difference with that would be in a lean product area of development and you were trying to find product market fit or do some of this research to see if your solution is the right, is the right product. The way you test that without having to build anything in a, in a lean product development type of idea would be you'd set up a landing page, you'd set up the ability to actually collect $20, and you'd have a way to deliver what it was you were promising in a fully manual way that didn't take any software to actually deliver the product to that person. So you'd run a bunch of ads on Facebook or Google, send a bunch of people to that website, and they actually, and if they actually do click the the button and actually do, you know, give you your twenty dollars, that's an actual dependable metric or data point that you could say in, okay, we've got something here. Let's continue to iterate on this. Now, if you send, you know, a thousand visitors to a website offering up this this potentially still imaginary product that you haven't even gone and built yet, and only ten of them give you twenty dollars out of a thousand, or five people out of a thousand give you ten dollars, then you've you've obviously got you've obviously don't have anywhere near a product market fit and you better go completely back to the drawing board or you know try to figure out if you're just targeting the wrong people with this solution um, and and that basically is the core of the idea of lean product development which is we only spent a hundred dollars on Facebook ads and putting up a website we spent zero time actually engineering what we what this this is ultimately going to be that we're trying to build so yeah I know I've heard an anecdote about one company, I want to say it was like a recipe delivery service or something that's now wildly successful that started that way. And I'm sure there are more than just one. But but do you know like which company or 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 do you, do you know any anecdotes of store of companies that have actually been founded that way? So yeah, so I can't think of anything specific. I do know that ProductHunt.com, which is a super successful now website, um, Ryan Hoover, who's one of the founders of that organization, he very early on wrote a great blog post about sort of the the, the, the nexus of, of how that all came together, it was literally something like almost like he was on Thanksgiving vacation and thought that this might be a valuable thing to have a place to sort of bubble up cool new products and SaaS tools that came online all the time. And it started as literally like an email list and he only gave uh, access to people to actually vote on the products. It was just a close knit email group of maybe a hundred people that he had of contacts in Silicon Valley. And now that's one of the most powerful, you know, when it comes to launching a product right now, they just did a deal with Amazon to start to bubble up new products um, that are coming, that are either about to be released or, or that have just been released and are looking for new users. So that's kind of an anecdote, but what that boils down to is, 
I get it. I've always sort of advocated for, uh, obviously there's sort of a bit of a fake it till you make it. That's a good way to test the market, you know, almost like that putting up a fake landing page and sending ad, you know, ad traffic to it to see what the reaction is from users. But another thing I've always advocated internally at large organizations is to at least for teams to start to think about how can we present a seamless experience on the customer side, no matter what the sausage making might look like behind the scenes? And that's basically the idea of when you when you craft these ideas, and this gets more to the software side of things, if you're going to sell a product that is a software or a service that's going to require a lot of automation on the back end, a lot of the code and engineering that you have to do is actually that that coding and that automation and the the actual components of the true application that's running on a server somewhere. Well, you can put up a front end and put something in front of customers a lot easier and a lot quicker and literally just have like form submission fields and things like that. And then just, you know, attract that data on the back end and then put the human power to it to, to make the thing happen that's supposed to happen. And that can be as ugly as it needs to be in order to just test it and get in front of people. And then you work on the automation and the building those tools on the back end that are going to continue to deliver that same seamless experience to the customer that you started with. But it, it sort of relieves you of this need to build everything first before you can test anything. If you just sort of take a step back and say, hey, it really doesn't matter how ugly or silly this looks like on the back end. And that gets into some of these services where it's like valet or food pick pickup or stuff like that, like you don't have to have any, you know, all you need is a phone that somebody can text message you on to start a food delivery service right now, if we're being honest. So that, that kind of gives you that idea of, well, what could be the leanest product ever? Well, the leanest product ever would be for me to put business cards at a coffee shop saying, I'll deliver your lunch, text this number. You know, that is a service and that is a product and that person is de is deriving value that they will probably give you some money on top of their lunch bill in order to pay for you to do that. And you're doing it in a slightly different manner in a little bit less painful, less stressful, less friction experience than it would be to call the diner and order your food and go down and carry it. So that, that that's kind of that, you know, you've essentially just launched a business with a cell phone and a phone number. And, and that, that really gets to the, to the idea of what is sort of this lean product and, and getting literally, literally running a business that really doesn't exist much beyond you using your sweat equity to deliver value to people. The only downside is that you have to compete with Uber Eats now. Well, that's true. That's true. And yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the nexus of an idea that maybe is, is sort of already met its match. But... That doesn't necessarily mean that that wouldn't work. Obviously, there's large swaths of the population that don't know that that service exists. It doesn't exist in lots of other cities. And in fact, many people may even have a, a bad brand reputation in their brain about Uber with some of the other things that have gone on in their history. So, you know, you, you could be offering some twist on that. And maybe, you know, I can't tech, I can't just open up my phone and send a text message right now and have Uber bring my food. So, you know, whether or not that's necessarily the best the best solution for any given user and what they're seeking, that's what you're going into the marketplace to go try to test. Yeah, good point. So so let me ask, you have a broad background and have worked with teams in a variety of different industries. What are some of the skill sets that a person or a team needs to really excel at following the lean product methodology? A skill set. Wow. It's so it's it's probably it's a pretty good example of something that's maybe not necessarily so much a skill as kind of a frame of mind and and almost it's almost a way of being in a state of 
having enough background experience and seeing and seeing enough projects fall flat on their face uh, to sort of be able to grasp these concepts of why it's better to do things in this new different way of looking at them. Um, and which which you could term as a skill because some people have trouble sort of getting over this this idea of, you know, always be shipping, fail fast, break things, get it out there. If it fails, that's actually a good thing. Now we now we have a better data point of what won't work and that's better than where we where we were yesterday. Um, you know, that's that's not a frame of mind that most Fortune 1000 or Fortune 10,000 companies are thinking um, and in fact has been, generally speaking, conditioned out of the modern, you know, workforce over the last several decades. So, you know, it fits well with, you know, most of the things that are hurled at millennials. It fits well with their frame of mind um, to, to not be so worried about things being perfect and to not let perfect be the enemy of done. Um, and that's that's where a lot of this stuff uh, breeds from. But the biggest skill is really just an ability to not worry so much about what most people would call quote unquote failure. You, you really have to appreciate the idea of doing is better than, you know, thinking, you know, doing is better, better than any golden idea. Uh, we have this list of sort of 10 commandments here within the Quicken Loans family of companies. It's called our isms. I think we're up to 12 or 13 of them now. But one of them is basically that, uh, you know, innovation, innovation is rewarded, but execution is worshipped. You know, anybody can sit around and have good ideas, but n none, of, none of that is worth anything until some portion of it is executed on. Uh, another one of the ideas that goes with this, I, I've just actually finished Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way. I was a little behind on that one, and then I wrapped up his, his, his latest one now, Ego is the Enemy. But the big one in the, the obstacle being the way is that if you just come to terms with the fact that life in general is going to be a shit show, and we can certainly apply that concept to developing products at, at big organizations, it's going to be a shit show. Change is the only constant. You're going to do nothing but face adversity. Your projects, your intentions, your wanted successes, no matter what, you're going to fail at some point. So why not just sort of embrace that and use that as your engine to go just start chipping away at the problem. No matter what it is that you're doing, it's better to be trying to chip away at it than to be sitting in a room thinking about what maybe you should do to chip away at it. Yeah, there's uh, something that one of my one of my coworkers here, Jessica Hall, likes to say. Um, something along the lines of strategy never survives first contact with the enemy. So no, ma no matter how brilliant your plan may be at the start, you're better off getting it out there and, and as you say, essentially testing it in the real world than you are coming up with the perfect plan. Yeah, which is, you know, a lot. It, it's kind of like the the idea of, you know, I think it was it Muhammad Ali that said everybody's got a great plan till they get punched in the face type of thing. So I can't say for sure that it was definitely Muhammad Ali that said that, but the, the idea certainly remains. And that speaks so much to the lean product development. What, what that really gets at and talk about a punch in the face and what you're trying to protect against is that some of this comes from the idea of lean manufacturing as well. And you think about it in sort of the, the evolution of the car industry more recently. You know, you're talking about teams and large organizations of people who historically for many decades, their idea of product development and how it went there was, 
we go, you know, sort of to use the metaphor, we go and lock ourselves in this room in the basement and a team of quote unquote experts sits around a table for a year, two years, whatever that might be, and thinks up what they think this perfect solution is going to be to try to predict what people are going to want one or two years from now because it's going to take one or two years to build the thing that we've just sat and sat around for a year or two thinking up. And don't forget, while we were thinking for those one or two years, we were using data from the one or two years past to craft our solution. And that data is now one or two years old before we even start to build the thing that's going to take us one or two years to build and get into the marketplace. So you're talking about these four and five year cycles of, oh, we here's the data point of what the market wants. Let's go try to take two years to develop what we think the solution will be to that. And now already we're two years behind that data of what they wanted. Now we're gonna start building it and it's gonna take us two years to get it to market. And you think about a punch in the face would be the launch of a car, like you know the Pontiac Aztec or something like that. Like, you know, this stuff comes to the market and gets that punch in the face. Like, how did this get past the drawing board? And, you know, that car is a bit of a cult classic following at this point. But I think the example makes sense that, you know, that was the problem with that that idea of product development was that you can't sit and like just think up things and sit and try to build the perfect solution while the marketplace continues to change and continues to adapt. And then you come to market with this thing that may or may not have even been a good idea however long ago when you started it. It certainly isn't a good idea now. And you would have found that out a lot more quickly had you sold, you know, uh, a one-tenth scale toy Pontiac Aztec to see if anybody even cares with a vehicle looking like that first or something like that. Like, you, you got to get something in the hands of consumers to get some sort of feedback of, oh man, we really got, we, we got we to mothball this project before we spend the next four years building something that's about to come out and get punched in the face. Yeah. And I mean, I know Tesla has probably different brand recognition than Pontiac, but that's essentially what they did with their, I think it's the Model S or something that won't be shipped for another two years, but they have you know tens of thousands of people willing to plonk down I forget, 5%, 10% or something of the car price two years ahead of time. Yeah, and to, you know, talk about lean product. All they have is some 3D CAD schematics and some really pretty drawings of what it might look like. And, you know, you know, people are, are falling all over themselves to give them 20 grand to hold their spot in line. That, that's, that's when you can safely say you have a great metric for product market fit. <laughs> <laughs> when people are happy two years ahead of time to give you their hard-earned money for it. And Absolutely. You've, you've definitely found a fit for a certain segment of the marketplace. So one of the intangibles that Lean Product looks to help companies improve upon is customer experience. And you talked about this a little bit before. I'm sure many people out there are familiar with the concept of user experience. What's the difference between user experience and customer experience or customer experience management? So the, big, the, the best way I've come up with to try to describe it, that is if you think about your experience with uh, your internet provider, let's take everybody's favorite uh, you know, thing to beat on, punching bag is Comcast, right? So 
Generally speaking, the idea and the practice of UX, user experience, that would be pretty, that would have a pretty focused application for when you log in to pay your bill, what are the steps, what are the pages you have to go through, what do those text boxes look like, how do those buttons respond when you press them, is it intuitive, uh, if you just handed this to a layman person, would they be able to make their way through it without any sort of instruction or help, those are the things that go into UX and that's a it's a deep practice you could almost get a doctorate level of education of psychology and the things that drive those 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 human to digital interactions now Obviously, hardware can have good UX too. The, the design of the physical products that we interact with, uh, those, those now so more than they used to, those design decisions are poured over by user experience experts as well as sort of design for beauty and aesthetics experts, but they're definitely looking at those things much more from the idea of user experience. What, what is my positive or negative experience using this single product um, or this single experience or this single point that I interact with this brand? The practice of customer experience management is really sort of just taking that 5,000 foot view of, of a user's experience and then zooming out to more of the 30,000 foot level and saying, okay, when a Comcast customer logs in to pay their bill each month, this is the UX of that one digital application that they interact with. Their customer experience encompasses everything from the time that somebody is, is even aware that Comcast is a brand or that Xfinity Internet is a thing till the time that they become a customer, till the time that that brand hopes that they become a loyal advocate. Uh, Gartner Digital Marketing is starting to refer to these people as low ads, which is loyal advocates. That's your goal is to turn every customer into a loyal advocate. The way that you do that is through amazing customer experience management. And customer experience management refers to essentially managing the UX of every touch point that your customer may come into contact with your brand and the user experience of either digital tools or even human to human interactions over the phone. So you're sort of looking at it as this holistic customer journey, uh, customer journey being one of the big sort of buzzwords that a lot of companies are looking to start to document. From the time that someone is aware that we may have a solution for them to when they contact us or they start to research whether or not this is the right solution for them to the time that they hopefully convert into a customer and then hopefully become a loyal advocate of ours or we try to cycle and sell them new products within that new cycle, uh, that's sort of the, ex the expanded picture of customer experience management versus just designing the user interaction or the user experience of a single point of, of interaction with your brand. And you, you mentioned, uh, is it Loyad's? It's it's like low ads, so it's like it's either it, yeah, like it's sort of just pronounced low ads, but I think it's got the Y in there. Okay, gotcha. But but so you picked that up. I would gather perhaps at the Gartner Digital Marketing Conference in San Diego earlier this year. I know you were there because I stalk you on numerous social media channels and online, of course. Were there any trends or presentations you saw at that conference or others you've been to this year that you thought were really interesting? So they talked a lot about that that customer experience management, the customer journeys. Uh, that was a, that was a hot topic, uh, more so because a, a lot of uh, people that 
generally speaking, one of the things that's happening at sort of the CMO level, the, the chief marketing officer, is two big things. A, they, see, they tend to have to understand these ideas of user experience with all of their digital products and this idea of customer experience management is in fact basically the same as brand management. If you start to look at the fact that every interaction with your company is essentially your product, no matter what it is that you actually sell, it's the experience that you provide in buying and using that product, that's actually what you, your, your product is. And if you're managing that closely enough and delivering that at, at a high level, you actually don't need any marketing, uh, You know, the, the, what traditionally has been referred to as marketing, lots of companies have proven that, is that if you just sort of deliver this product experience or the experience of interacting with your brand at such a high level, you don't actually have to do a lot of the things that were considered traditional marketing, like buying ads and buying traffic. So if you're a CMO, that's a bit of a new world. The other thing that you have to contend with is this idea that you need so much technology in order to track all these people and know everything about everyone that's a customer so that you can deliver a personalized experience at that high customer experience management level. In order to do that, it takes a ton of technology, a ton of integrations, a ton of different vendors and, and other partners and things like that. And CMOs have generally relied on the CIOs or the technology side of the business for a lot of those decisions and even a lot of vetting of those vendors. And what's happening is CMOs are having to become these highly technical people and a lot of high, a lot of high performing organizations are actually hiring lots of engineers in the marketing organization and basically giving the CMOs their own kind of SWAT team skunk works application development arm in order to go and build quick integrations with vendors so that they don't have to build everything into their own proprietary systems. A lot of big companies have big proprietary CMSs that run their websites, you know, proprietary CRM that has all their customer data, but you've got this vendor for $1,000 a month can go out and find you 10,000 new customers, but it's going to take you eight months to build the integration with their product. A CMO can't take that as an answer. So they're starting to build these teams so they can build out some of their own technology in the organization and they can justify it more so because a lot of their activity goes directly to the bottom line versus overhead IT type systems that just kind of keep the lights on. The big trends that, that kind of associate with that is really the number one thing, which was their collection and acquiring and assessing of first party data. Everything they talked about was first party data. Uh, the big space of vendors that manage this is data management platforms, DMPs, um, as well as some of the some of the CRMs have capabilities in that space. Uh, tag managers are the things that you use to acquire a lot of this data and capture all these digital touch points that you have with your customers and get them into a data management platform, which is sort of this all knowing, all aware brain that is aware of every interaction you have with your customers, whether that's over the phone at the call center, in a retail bricks and mortar location, or via your website or your mobile apps, you, you need to have this sort of central brain that's aware of all those interactions so that that data can then be pumped back into your business and pumped back into your marketing campaigns. Um, and a lot of companies are just now starting to figure this out. They've depended on partners. They've depended on buying these audiences and buying this data from agencies and other third-party data providers. And they're finding that a lot of that data 
is unfortunately being compiled with algorithms and models. They may take a thousand people and, and then extrapolate that data out to a hundred thousand people. That's not as accurate as the actual behavior that you observe from a single person. And the only and the only person who's in a position to do that is the actual company that they're interacting with. So you have to build all this technology into your products in order to capture that data. And then obviously you start getting into the what's generally referred to as the big data conversation. Now that you're collecting everything, what do you do to sort of bubble up the patterns and the things that are actually important to the business so that you can respond to the right data and have the right picture and the right intelligence instead of just literally being awash in an ocean of data that you don't know how to leverage? And sticking with uh, a little bit the concept of UX, one topic that we talked about in the run-up to the podcast is the burgeoning field of voice as UX. So what does that concept entail? So that's that's sort of an, it's going on this idea, and you know if you if you haven't noticed yet, but basically the the way that we're going to interact with most of technology now is going to be via either voice or the technology is already going to know what we want, so it won't actually require an interaction because of artificial intelligence. But uh, as we can see with the sort of this emergence of Siri and OK Google, and now more so with Amazon's Alexa. Uh, Alexa, the platform and the developer community is really doing some game changing stuff. I watched a video online, I believe it was January when, um, uh, what's the CES, the big electronic show, uh, uh, Robert Scoble was there and he was basically just doing a Facebook live stream with the girl, I can't remember her name and maybe we could look it up and put it in the show notes, but she was basically like the head developer advocate for the, the Amazon Alexa platform. And this is still kind of pretty early on before people even knew that it was a platform that you could access. But, you know, right now, if, and let me take a step back. So voice is literally just another way for you to interact with software or an application that's probably running on a server somewhere, just like all the other software that we interact with. So right now, if you need to put a file in your Dropbox, you go log into a website and you use your mouse and your screen to interact with that software application and you tell it to upload a certain file by pointing at that file, clicking it and dragging it into your browser or choosing it from a list. That's your interaction. That's the user interaction. Well, not too long, not too far off from now, you'll just say, hey, Dropbox, upload my resume to this folder. Uh, and it'll just happen. That Now your user interaction is voice. There's a lot of differences in that. There's a lot of new error potentials and things like that that you have to deal with. But even though it's hard because it's becoming this new way for us to interact with everything, you know, and if we would have just looked at all the movies from the last few decades, we wouldn't have seen this coming, right? So basically, Alexa, the Alexa platform is doing something pretty amazing where if you already have software that people interact with via that point and click type method that they do now or swipe and tap on their phone, Voice is just a new way to interact with that same software capability. Yeah, your software might need some modifications in order to sort of optimize that experience, but it's really just a new way for someone to tell your software that they need your software to do something for them and to give them an answer. So it's not so much that it's so groundbreaking, it's just that it's gonna change the way we're gonna to start to interact with the world. And some of those things require different considerations if you're designing something to, to require you to take your phone out of your pocket and swipe and tap a few times versus just take it out of your pocket and say something to it. 
And if, you, and if you're zooming out and looking at your whole picture of your customer experience management, not just how they interact with that one thing, that also might be a difference where, well, we asked them to type this thing in over here, but then they're able to do voice over there. If we're looking at sort of the conflict of those two experiences, that could be a degradation of their experience versus if they were just using voice or just having to type something. So that's kind of how it fits into that space, but sort of the future looking space of it, if you have software right now or you have a, an idea for a thing that that would work off a of voice it, it's much sort of like the big tech boom and the fact that it costs nothing to get a website online now because all the services are shared it used to be if you wanted to build a tech company you had to rent real estate buy servers buy the internet pipe and everything else just to get a web page online might cost you two hundred thousand dollars obviously we're a long you're, we're a long ways from that. That's what's been part of the, the revolution in the more recent years is the fact that anybody can spin up a web server for seven bucks if they want to, right? Well, with Alexa, Alexa now, it used to be if you wanted to have a voice or a speech recognition startup, you'd have to go build your own voice model and do voice recognition and do all that stuff. Alexa is essentially providing the Amazon cloud services of voice and speech recognition. You can tie into their recognition engine, you can use their backend to deliver the application, and you can essentially stream voice directly from the device to your application, do the text recognition, do the computing, send back the answer, all on Amazon service, all leveraging their technology, and they're putting the devices into millions of homes that's essentially building your potential user base for you. Okay, nice. Well, fascinating food for thought about where the future of voice UX and voice technology is going. Jeremy, to tie it all back together, a couple of products that I use occasionally in my work here at Three Pillar that have come to mind over the course of this episode that you know that listeners may want to explore in their own work are uh, Unbounce for building landing pages and UserTesting.com for getting real-time feedback near real-time feedback from, uh, f from, you know, from, from possible testers out there. Are there tools that you find that are indispensable in your day-to-day -day work uh, for getting lean product experiments done? So yeah, those are actually both good examples. Um, uh, uh, some other things that are out there, um, lead pages is obviously, I believe, very similar to Unbounce. They do some good things as far as giving you the capability to do pretty quick A-B tests with a pretty turnkey type of thing. Um, then you start to get into some of the more robust analytics. Uh, you know, Kiss Metrics is sort of like the premium, premium version of Google Analytics to some regard. Um, another big thing that is starts to get into sort of that uh, customer experience management. Uh, there's some some pretty cool holistic turnkey platforms that essentially allow you to take stuff that would usually be pretty granular log type data of what your users are doing inside of an application and sort of make that more into a very user kind of user friendly dashboard of activity of your users and grouping them into cohorts of people that have taken certain actions that you've deemed valuable inside your application. Uh, Intercom is, is, is one of the, the top companies that does this. And in fact, their VP of product um, name is totally escaping me right offhand, uh, De Dev Trainer, Des Trainer. Um, he's, he's put out some presentations about product management and product development that I, I would take as any kind of gospel or Bible. Uh, but they're one of the top companies in doing this where they're essentially, you're essentially monitoring everything that every user is doing inside of your application, grouping them by cohorts, and then you can actually program different experiences based on those cohorts or deliver messaging directly within the application or push notifications 
systems to sort of enhance or modify their their experience that they're having with your application. So Intercom, I'd say, is a, is a great, great vendor for anybody who actually owns and runs a mobile application or a web application uh, that you're trying to convert more users or get people to for it to be more sticky and spend more time. Uh, Intercom is a great company that does that. Uh, I think Pendo, Pendio, it's, it's either Pend, P-E-N-D.io or pendo.io. Uh, they do a bit of that as well. Plus they add the component of sort of user onboarding, which is where the first time someone uses your product, you can actually pretty easily design uh, the where like the, the screen fades away and hide, highlights a certain thing where they should click. It kind of does that product tour, only instead of it being static images, it's actually your live web product or your live mobile application that the onboarding experience happens within. Uh, and it tracks all the conversion on the back end. So those are some of the big tools. Uh, otherwise, sort of the tag managers and the data management is really just the idea of having the visibility into everything that a user is doing and then being able to sort of crunch that data and see what's working and see what might not be. Okay, nice. Well, some great food for thought. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on today and talking about Lean Product CX. And we didn't really get around to growth hacking, but that's okay. Uh, at least half an hour of really good stuff on, uh, on Lean Product and CX and where that world is going. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And the best part about not quite getting to the things is that just leaves, you know, it open for people to send me questions, which I'd invite anybody to do. I'm sure you'll have my contact information published or, or where to find me. Um, and, you know, I, I'm happy to always help and answer questions. I always I always like helping out on tough problems because uh, it just helps me keep the blade sharp. Yep, definitely. So on Twitter at, at Jeremy C, that's at Jeremy C E E. Uh, I know you're also on about.me, obviously on LinkedIn, anywhere else people should be looking for you. I'm all in on Snapchat too. I had it installed maybe about a year and a half ago and thought it was the silliest thing I'd ever seen before. But now that I've seen what's coming, I, they might just put Twitter out of business. So uh, I'm about four months into being sort of all in. Uh, my screen name there is It's Jeremy C because somebody had already taken my name. So it's I-T-S-J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-E-E. -E -E. It's Jeremy C. Um, definitely come and follow me there. Okay, nice. We'll be sure to put all this in the show notes and mention it in the blog post that is published along with the uh, along with the podcast episode. Jeremy, thanks again. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks once again to Jeremy Caverly for joining us for this episode of the podcast. And thank you for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to tune in next time when we're excited to welcome Dr. Max McEwen back to talk about his new book titled Now. The Surprising Truth About the Power of Now. Among the topics we'll discuss are how to nurture your nowness, how to discover effortless action and effortless decisions, and some of the best ways to embrace now to keep moving forward. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud, and you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store.